step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Multiple sclerosis destroys connection, so it's only fitting that connection would be its greatest enemy because connection takes away MS's ability to isolate. And as more connections form, we end up with more knowledge, more resources, more understanding, more ideas, and more hope. And then the connections we make become more powerful than the connections MS destroys. MS kills connection. Connection kills MS. Give what you know at msconnection.org. Over there, over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, (laughs) she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, (laughs) no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. (laughs) Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at PornLearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Morning with Joy Keyes. I'm your host, Joy Keyes, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter.com slash Joy Keyes, and you can become a fan on Facebook. Just look up Saturday Mornings with Joy Keyes. And now I am on Instagram. Check me out on Instagram. You know, if you tag me in a photo, you might win a prize. You guys know I give away books and CDs and movie tickets, all types of things. Today I'll be giving away the book by my guest. So, again, follow at Joy Keys or become a fan on Facebook or check me out on Instagram. Today, wow, I am speaking with, I guess I would say he's a warrior in a sense, uh, Brian Stevenson. He's a public interest lawyer who has dedicated his career to helping the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. He's a professor of law at New York University's Law School and the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, an Alabama-based group that has won major legal challenges eliminating excessive and unfair sentencing, exonerating innocent prisoners on death row, confronting uh, abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, and aiding children prosecuted as adults. I believe the warrior is on the phone right now. Let's see here. Good morning. How Good morning. are you? How are you? Uh, I'm well. Thank you so much for calling in this morning. I'm delighted to be with you. Wow. I would say, as I just mentioned earlier, you definitely are a warrior. You are a fighter. 
I appreciate what you are doing. I hope that you continue. It's absolutely amazing what you have done so far. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I've been motivated by a lot of the inequality and injustice that I see, and I feel fortunate to play some small role in standing up for incarcerated and condemned people. Why are you doing this? What are you getting out of doing this and helping these people? Because you have a nonprofit. It's not like you're Bill Gates or something like that that I know <laughs> of anyway. I haven't seen your tax return. But <laughs> seriously, you know? <laughs> No, I, I appreciate that. Well, for me, it's a serious problem. We've, uh, you know, we had 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972. Uh, today, we have 2.3 million people in jails or prisons. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. There's some 6 million people on probation or parole. We have 68 million Americans with criminal arrests who may have diminished employment opportunities as, recall, as a result of that. And so I see tremendous inequality. I see tremendous abuse. We're putting 13- and 14-year-old children in adult jails or prisons. We've sentenced some to die in prison. And I really just can't be comfortable when I see the kind of uh, uh, discrimination and bias and exploitation. Uh, we have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And for me, uh, having been fortunate enough to go to law school and to be trained to do something to fight inequality, I feel an obligation to do it, and I feel energized by it. I, you know, I live in Montgomery, Alabama, surrounded by the legacy of people who fought and died and challenged inequality with fewer resources than me. So I feel actually quite privileged uh, to do what I do, and and energized by the legacy that supports what I do. Well, now you've written a book. It's called Just Mercy, and it talks about one of your first cases uh, dealing with a gentleman named Walter McMillan. And in reading the book, I was energized, infuriated, disgusted, wanted to scream, um, <laughs> run around the block, like throw leaflets at every window and door, like, do you know this? Can you see this? Ah! You know? Um so, so thank you for writing the book, uh, and I will be giving away some copies of the book uh, to the audience. But uh, it's very tiring, and at yeah. one point in the book, you do discuss giving up almost. And talk to, can you talk to the audience about that, the, the exhaustion that you felt? Sure, sure. No, and I, I, first of all, I appreciate that response because, um, you know, I wanted to do all of those things when I was working on that case because it was just so astonishing. They put him on death row for 15 months before he'd ever been convicted. They had clear evidence that he was innocent. Uh, there was all of this hostility and resistance. We got bomb threats working on that case. And so... I I appreciate hearing that you want to scream and shout because I think what's happened to him and, and thousands of other people ought to be provocative. But you're right. It can be challenging uh, to constantly face uh, these barriers and these obstacles that uh, characterize uh, the path uh, to justice. And, I, you know, I do get to the point. We've had a lot of people... Uh, release from death row. We've won about 115 cases of, for condemned prisoners, but we've had people executed. And it's in those moments where you can be overwhelmed. 
but I'm encouraged because I've met extraordinary people. When I met Rosa Parks many years ago, she asked me <laughs> what I was doing, and I explained to her mm, yes. to <laughs> end the death penalty and do all of these things and challenge uh, rape, mass incarceration and confront poverty and overcrowding and the death penalty and prosecuting children. When I finished, she looked at me and she said, mm, 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 that's going to make you tired, tired, tired. <laughs> and, yes. an, and another amazing older woman, Johnny Carr, leaned forward and she said, you've got to be brave, brave, brave. I think in those moments of exhaustion, we just have to find our courage and realize that this is a marathon, not a sprint, and continue fighting. For me, it becomes necessary. I don't think I can be at peace if, uh, if I don't keep fighting to, to do what I can to correct these imbalances. What can you tell the average American, because uh, particularly the average uh, African-American, uh, minority, immigrant, even um, the youth, what can you tell them, myself, when we're confronted by the police, what can we do? Because we feel helpless or we feel enraged, we want to lash out, we know that they're doing something wrong, uh, should yeah. we stay quiet? What can we do as just an individual when we are confronted by the system, by the hegemony? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think that um, what we've got to do is uh, take advantage of the moments and the time when we're not in immediate crisis and begin to change the way we talk about race in this country. There is a presumption of guilt and dangerousness that people of color in America are born with. And as much as we hate to acknowledge it or talk about it, it will undermine opportunities. It will create moments of crisis. It will increase the risk of a dangerous encounter with law enforcement. It will disrupt chances for employment and education. And so we've got to talk about that uh, when we're not in those crisis moments and begin to change the narrative that has shaped racial inequality. We're talking about slavery at EJI. We're talking about terrorism and lynching. We want to recast the conversation around civil rights. I think when you're in those moments of confrontation, the first obligation is to survive. You know, I've been on the street with a police officer pointing a gun at me threatening to blow my head off. And in that moment, mm -hmm. you've got to be calm. You can't turn that moment into the opportunity to complain about oppression. You've got to survive first. And after that moment of immediate threat is over, you've got to talk about what's happened to you, and you've got to engage your community in confronting that reality and getting those in power uh, to think differently about the way in which they presume the guilt and dangerousness of black and brown people in this country. Those conversations are going to be essential if we're going to actually recover uh, from the legacy of racial inequality that has created these presumptions of guilt and dangerousness. Well, uh, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, he's the uh, director of the Schomburg Center. He wrote this book, uh, Condemnation of Blackness. And it's important, I think, for people to read that book as well. Your, your book is also wonderful. But he goes into the historical aspects of even before Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. It's like this has been going on for a long time, people. And, you know, he talks about how stats are used to make the face of blackness crime, equal crime, you know. Um, yeah. And I think um, that is something that, it's ingrained, it's every day, it's unaware, people are unaware that, you know, oh, when I'm walking down the street and I see a black face, I'm going to grab my bag. It's just unconscious sometimes. They don't, may not even, don't even realize, oh, this is what I'm doing. Um, right. Why am I doing this? It's because these are the images that you're seeing on the news, you're hearing on the radio, um, even though maybe there are more people on welfare than there are black people. I mean, these are facts, but people are just unaware of the facts. You know, um. a a a absolutely. No, we have um, criminalized and demonized people of color for a very long time. 
you know, at EJI, we're actually producing materials that are aimed at digging into that um, by looking at the myths that were that surrounded and sustained slavery, by looking at the legacy of lynching, by even looking at what we did during the uh, segregation era. And be, be, because I don't think we can actually understand uh, how those uh, those uh, re- reactions that that frame that presumption uh, still still lives until we understand that history. And I am really grateful for Galileo for writing such a powerful book. And there are a lot of materials that I hope your listeners will check out. They can certainly go to our website at eji.org and ask to get the calendars and the reports on slavery and the reports on how this racial narrative has developed uh, for centuries in this country and how we're going to have to talk about it and be more truthful about it if we're going to overcome it. We didn't have truth and reconciliation at the end of the civil rights movement, and we are suffering as a result of that. Mm-hmm. One of the powerful things you bring up in the book is about being broken. Mm. Like when I hit that sentence, those paragraphs about the brokenness, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Okay, he's, he's, you're going, this is, this is where we need to go, beyond race, beyond gender, yeah. Well, you you went deep and you were very courageous, I believe, in exposing your brokenness and saying that you were broken. Can you speak to the audience about this issue of being broken? Yeah, I um I am persuaded that if you get close to the kinds of problems that we have to face in this country, you'll sometimes get cut and bruised and scarred, but there's something about that that makes you appreciate uh, your humanity. I mean, what bothers me the most is that most of my clients, all of my clients are broken people. They've been broken by disability or poverty or racism or abuse or neglect. And I realized uh, in the process that uh, my my life is filled with brokenness, but I also realize uh, that I don't do what I do because I've been trained to do it or because I have the capacity to do it or because somebody needs to do it. What I realize is that I do what I do because I'm broken too. I I've got vulnerabilities. I'm human. I weep for some of my clients. I feel that joy, but I also feel that pain. But it also empowers me to know that I'm not just advocating for the condemned and the incarcerated, but I'm advocating for myself, my humanity, my peace, my justice quotient, my sense of purpose is tied to the purpose and peace and justice of those around me. And that's why I have come to embrace brokenness as a way of moving forward uh, it informs, I think, uh, what I believe, which is that we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And that, mm-hmm. that notion inspires me. I think that was so powerful. And, and also I wanted to mention to the audience that the idea, I, I talked to you earlier, why are you doing this? And I think we should have some type of responsibility because uh, it brings to my mind, I think it's a Baldwin quote or I think something I saw in Angela Davis's book, they will come for you in the morning. It's like, you 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 can look at the, their neighbor and like oh my god they came for him but one day they're going to come for you so that's right it's important to take action today like now like don't delay because they could come for you in the morning I mean are you familiar Absol- with that um yeah a- absolutely no and I think it's a really powerful concept I can't tell you how many times I've uh, gotten involved in cases where parents or people are saying I never thought this was going to happen to me I read about it I can't believe this has happened to me. And you're right, we shouldn't wait until we're in that moment of crisis. We've got to share the pain and anguish of those 2.3 million incarcerated, those 6 million on probation and parole, those tens of millions that are struggling with the ravages of over-incarceration and excessive punishment. 
And I think when we do that, we better pre- prepare ourselves for the times when we will be challenged and threatened. One of the stories that really uh, just kind of ate at me, I mean, Walter's story was, to me, just ridiculous. I, I just was yeah. like, this is comedy, this is a farce, <laughs> what the hell, okay. But the young lady, uh, <laughs> the young lady Trina, uh, you went in yeah. deep uh, detail about Trina's life, uh, her abuse, Witnessing abuse, but then her abuse of herself, but the father be killing a dog. The, yeah. the, then she left, and then she got abused by another family member. She was homeless. And yeah. this all happened before she was 15 years old. That's right. Okay? Yeah. It, it all happened before 15 years old. It's like that is un- incomprehensible to me. I'm, I've been fortunate. I have not been physically abused. I have not had to witness my mother or father being abused. I've had yeah. other things in my life, definitely. Um, but it's absolutely incomprehensible. And I think that when we meet people in the world, I think I told my daughter this, like it's kind of similar to the brokenness. You don't know what their story is. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. And I think with this justice system we have is not justice. Um, can you talk a little bit about Trina to the audience? Sure. Kind of, yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, it, um, we got involved in, in, in a bunch of cases involving 13- and 14-year-old children who had been sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. The United States is the only country in the world that condemns children uh, to die in prison at that age. And Trina Garnett was one of the kids uh, that uh, we started working with. She was in Chester, Pennsylvania. This was not a Deep South case. This is a case from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has the largest number of children condemned to die in prison, and she had suffered horrific abuse growing up in a family, a very poor family, uh, suffered some disabilities and mental illness, and uh, tragically started a fire where two kids got killed. She was convicted of second-degree murder, which uh, revealed no intent to kill, but that's a mandatory life without parole sentence in Pennsylvania. And after suffering all of that abuse, uh, she was sent to the prison, the women's prison, and then raped by a male guard uh, and got pregnant as a result of the rape. And all of that horror was never really addressed. They never criminally prosecuted the man that raped her. Uh, She never really uh, recovered or got any uh, help as a result of that. And she still remains imprisoned uh, in Pennsylvania. She's one of the people we currently are fighting for. And we believe that states ought to do better by children. We've got too many children born into violent families, living in violent neighborhoods, going to violent schools, shaped by violence and trauma. And then when they react violently, that's when we intervene. That's when we jump on them and we try to throw them away and punish them. And I think that's unfair. And you're right. There is a story behind some of these acts. And we've got to understand that story before we can impose just punishments. Now, you are against the death penalty. Is this correct? I am, yes. I I just don't think that the death penalty is an issue that is decided by whether people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed. I think the question is, do we deserve to kill? Do we have a system of justice capable of imposing perfect punishment? And for me, that's an easy question. We do not. And as a result, we should mm-hmm. not be executing people. You see, that's where we got – I got a little uh, – you know, I have my feelings about that which are, like, for example, I have a daughter, and I remember her growing up, and I was thinking, you know, if anybody ever touched her or hurt her, like, my, the rage, the insanity that I would come into me. And even now, I mean, she's grown up, and I'm like, wow, I, I got yeah. on the edge on that. You know, I'm on the edge sure. on that. Like, if somebody sure. hurt her, I just don't know. I just don't know. 
because I can't say it hasn't happened, and I hope it doesn't happen. But, you know, I, I, so the book is important, and I'm glad, again, you wrote it, because it brings that feeling up in me, and I'm able to view at it and look at it and dissect it and be like, mm, you know, kind of need at it, you know. Yeah. Um, no, and I think that's important, and I think that's really my hope with the book, is to just get people to think more deeply about these issues. My grandfather was murdered when I was 16. I I know a little bit about that pain and anguish when you lose someone to violence. I just think for 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 many of us, um, you know, we're just tired of just beating up on the individual that commits the violent act. We want to create communities where there's less violence, where our children are less at risk, uh, where we're not constantly worried about that kind of victimization because we're working on creating healthier communities, safer communities, just communities. And I don't think we actually contribute to that kind of public safety by strapping somebody to a gurney and and, and executing them as if that's the response. I think we've got to do something a little more complicated but a lot more hopeful. And that's uh, that's why I've been pushing to see resources redirected from these extreme punishments to more informed and thoughtful and hopeful interventions in communities where there's too much violence. I can see that. I think what that, to me, makes me think of is abundance. I think the issue overall may be that we have enough and we can share enough and we can take the time enough to care, to uh, evaluate, to support, uh, to lead. uh, But about abundance, when you don't think there's enough, when you think there's not enough time, that you don't have enough energy, not enough resources, um, not enough forgiveness, yeah. I can't forgive one more person. Mm. I think it goes to the idea of abundance. Um, yeah, I think but, that's uh, really insightful. I think that's really insightful, Joy. I, I couldn't agree more because we can do so much more than we think we can do. You know, I was taught you have to believe things that you haven't seen. You've got to stand when other people are sitting. You've got to speak when other people are quiet. And I think the willingness to do that is recognizing you know, that we're all capable of more than we sometimes imagine. Definitely. Well, you definitely have proven that with your work, uh, with your book. Everybody, please check out Just Mercy. Uh, We're giving away a copy of that. Uh, You can follow me at Joy Keys or become a fan on Facebook or tag me on uh, Instagram. Uh, Check out uh, Brian Stevenson's organization, Equal Justice Initiative, eji.org. They also are on Twitter, eji, I think, underscore, dot org. You can follow them, learn what they're doing, get involved in your community. Thank you so much, Brian Stevens, uh, Professor Brian Stevenson, <laughs> lawyer Brian Stevenson, warrior Brian Stevenson. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Great talking with you. Okay, you have a great weekend. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with, as I said earlier, warrior Brian Stevenson. He's a lawyer. He's a social justice advocate. He started the organization Equal Justice Initiative, and he is helping fight against inequalities, exonerating innocent prisoners on death row, confronting abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, and aiding children prosecuted as adults. These are all important issues. We should all get involved in some way or another because, as I said during the interview, they could come for you in the morning. Uh, Don't just sit back and think, oh, that's not going to happen to me. I've never done anything wrong, so I won't be involved in this criminal justice system. Um, I think by sitting back and not doing anything, not being involved, uh, you're supporting the system. And uh, I mention to people all the time, try to become a mentor to a young person. Try to help a young person. 
We're complaining a lot about what the young people are doing, how they're behaving. Try to support them. They are our future. They can change the system. And also he talks about vets in the book. They are an important population that are definitely pushed to the side. And the mentally ill, like, wow, don't we all have some kind of issue that we might break out one day and (laughs) unleash on the world? Well, there's some people who've already done that and need some assistance. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You can follow me again at Joy Keys or become a fan on Facebook or check me out on Instagram. It's Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me. My email address is Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. I would love to hear from you and I hope you guys have a wonderful Saturday. Over there, over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, (laughs) she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, (laughs) no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. (laughs) Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at bornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.